The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Morning, everybody. How we doing? All right. One person's doing good. How are the rest of you? You awake? You here? Amen. I know... Uh, I know there's snow coming tonight, but we don't have to be bummed yet. Let's just wait till it gets here, okay? It'll be fine. The kids are going to have a great time. My kids are stoked. They can't wait. You know, they don't have to shovel it, but praise God. Uh, I'm Pastor Vince. I do a lot of the Bible teaching here at Love City Church, and that's what I'm here to do. So if you have a Bible with you, please turn to Mark chapter 12. We're going to be in uh, verses 28 through 44. We're going to go all the way to the end of the chapter. Uh, and I know I say this a lot, but we, we have <laughs> an exceptional amount of work to do today, okay? So uh, today's going to be a little bit like drinking from a fire hose, and I, and I know that. And, and also I want to say this, this section of Mark 12 is like, in, in some ways it's like home base for us as a church, okay? Like if you want to understand, and you'll see that more as we go, like who we are, what we're about, what gets us excited... Uh, these verses really encapsulate a lot of that. And so uh, this, I had a guy tell me one time, I preached somewhere, it wasn't, thankfully it wasn't at Love City Church. I preached somewhere else and a guy came up to me afterwards, he said, you know man, uh, you might just want to like calm down a little bit. Like you're a little too excited or what, and I was like, look, hey, you know, I don't, I probably didn't say this to him. I was like, okay, thank you for that input, you know, but uh, this is exciting. <laughs> the truth is exciting. Jesus and his gospel are exciting. The word of God is exciting. And so I'm just anticipating today, because these strike chords really near and dear to my heart, that there may be moments of exuberant passion today. And I just want you, in case you would write that off uh, as, man, this guy must you know, hit the coffee heavy this morning, intentionally, just so that couldn't be the blame, I only drank decaf this morning, okay? So whatever happens here, it ain't the coffee. Amen? All right. Some of you are excited. Some of you are like, oh, cool. This, this might be fun. Some of you are like, oh, Lord, what have I done? Especially if you're here today, maybe for the first time, you're joining us through the live stream for the first time. Uh, just remember, it's, it's the truth that's exciting. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not passionate about this. You know, emotions tied to truth are a good thing. I'm not passionate about this because uh, I got swept up into some kind of scheme here. It's because it's the truth, man. And so it strikes all the way down to the, the depth of our hearts. Amen. All right, so we're going to read uh, Mark 12, 28 through 44, okay? And then we're going to work on it. Here we go. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that he had answered them well. So remember, we just came out of Jesus giving the parable with the vine dressers and the vineyard. And then, you know, we had several groups of religious leaders come and kind of take a crack at trying to make him look bad. Uh, none of that worked, and now we're, we're picking up from there. So... Uh, one, of, one of the scribes heard them arguing and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, the foremost is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else besides him and to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. And Jesus began to say, as he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David. David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so in what sense is he his son? And the large crowds enjoyed listening to him. In his teaching, he was saying, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses and for appearances' sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and he began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. 
A poor widow came and put in two, two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury, for they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned and all she had to live on. Praise God for his word. Now, if you know me or you've been kind of kicking it with me for a long time and you saw that part about uh, long prayers, let me just say, and for appearances sake, offer long prayers. I might pray long, man, but it's not for appearances sake, okay? So don't come at me with that one, all right? Amen. Okay. So here's, I said that this is, this is home, I mean, this is home basis. I have less notes today written down than I can remember, but my biggest struggle today will be this sermon not being five hours. I don't think it will be, so don't panic. I don't think it will be, okay? So, uh, <laughs> but, there, so part of why that is, is, is here at Love City Church, we have, we have five core values that we've identified, five things that kind of keep us anchored and centered upon the mission that Jesus has given us. And so those five core values are that we seek to be gospel-centered in everything. We're looking for, we're, we're taking on this mantle of responsibility, we believe, to redefine love to the culture, According to the scriptures, according to God's definition, we think that humility is something that's very important for Jesus' followers to be aware of, that diversity makes us stronger, okay? So humility, diversity, and then the last is unity, and we identify that as we believe there should be unity in our homes because of what Jesus has taught and done. There should be unity in our local churches. There should be unity in the church broadly, right? The, The church over the whole globe. And so the, the problem with me trying to figure out how to preach this without touching all of that is because it's all in here. And so as you listen to those five core values, you could probably easily surmise that each one of those is a sermon, maybe a sermon series. And then, but here's the problem is you have a guy standing in front of you who's going to try to do them all today. Okay. I'm breaking all the rules. This you should not do this. Okay. But here we go. Hallelujah. Some of you like that. Some of you, again, I know are scared. It's going to be okay. It's going to be awesome. Okay, so what was the first one I said? I said, for, for us at Love City Church, being gospel-centered in everything, gospel-centered, that that's a core value for us, and it's the first one in the list on purpose, okay? What does that mean? Well, and, and how do we see it here? Okay, let me, let's look at verses 35 through 37 again. It may not be, it may not be uh, immediately evident to you why it's here, but I'm going to show you. So 35 through 37, this is where Jesus says probably the most confusing part of this set of verses. And I'm going to, I'll unpack it for you. And Jesus began to say, as he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so in what sense is he his son? Okay, so that's, that's about as clear as mud. What, what do we have here? Okay, so he, Jesus quotes David, right? David the king, uh, as saying, the Lord said to my Lord. And that's where most of us are like, right? A little bit of like a dog whistle head tilt. The Lord said to my Lord. So what, the Lord, okay? That's like the one true God of Israel. The Lord said to my Lord, my Lord here being the Messiah, okay? This is David talking about the Messiah. So the Lord said to my Lord, what did he say? He said, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. So what Jesus is doing here is he's popping up to say, hey guys, you had all these fun questions for me. Here's one for you. How did David talk like this? How can this make any sense? Because the scribes all say rightly, because they're looking at a lot of what the rest of the Old Testament had to say, that, that, the, that the Messiah would be the son of David, would be a descendant of David. So how, how is David calling the Messiah my Lord, but it's one of his descendants? And, and the whole point in Jesus bringing this up, he, he could have had a giant neon arrow sign pointing to him, blinking as he said this, because that's basically what he was doing. Hey guys, you're missing the point. You want to know what the point is? And Jesus is the only one in the universe that can do this and it not be totally dead wrong. I'm the point. You're missing the point and I'm the point. What does that have to do with being gospel-centered? Because friends, the gospel is about Jesus. It's always been about Jesus. All of the scriptures are either pointing us forward to Jesus, telling us the story of Jesus, or telling us how to live in light of Jesus. Jesus is the point. 
the gospel rotates around the person and work of Jesus. The, the bad, the, what, what is the gospel in a summary statement? The gospel is the bad news that we are sinners, but even worse, we're sinners, but we also have this constant tendency to think we have all the right answers and we can save ourselves. So the gospel is the bad news about us is know-it-all sinners that think we can save ourselves. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus came to save us. And he, is, he doesn't just have the right answer. Friends, he is the right answer. Jesus is the right answer. And he shows them here that we don't. So what, what, how do I see the gospel in 35 through 37? Jesus basically is hitting them with, he's, he's chinking away at, he's hitting it with a hammer, this, this armor and facade that they have, a feeling like they have it all figured out. They know all the answers. Hey guys, quick question. From the scriptures that you, you, you're the guy that's supposed to have it all memorized, you're supposed to be leading all these people in how to understand and interpret it, but you're missing the point. You're missing what all of it's pointing to, and it's pointing to me. Well, that sounds kind of prideful. Listen, friends, it's not prideful if you're the God of the universe, who Jesus is. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. That's John 1, right? Okay, so... Uh, Jesus unashamedly here lets them know that he is the point and they are missing the point. And that, that right there is a, is a great example of how we, you know, we, we got to do it a little different than Jesus did. We're pointing to him. We can't point to ourselves. But coming in, letting them know, hey guys, you don't actually have all the answers you think you do. But here is the answer. And it's me. That's, that's the gospel. And we seek as a church to for everything that we do, anything that we do, to be centered on this truth because we believe the scriptures are centered on this truth. We believe that the message of Christianity revolves around Christ and his gospel. And so that is why uh, that's a core value for us. The second one that I told you is that we believe it's our job. This has always been a problem. I would say it's maybe, maybe the worst it's ever been now. to take the challenge upon us to, to redefine love to the culture according to the scriptures, according to, again, it's going to ultimately end up pointing us to Christ, all these things will, but for us to redefine love and help people see what God means when he says it, okay? And, and, wh- and why, is this, <clears throat> why is this such a big deal? Why does this make one of our core values? Because if you, if you really look at much of what keeps people away from trusting in Jesus or exploring uh, with any openness the idea that uh, this God that we talk about can be trusted, a lot of it comes down to a misunderstanding of what love is. A lot of times what we do, most people uh, have at least heard, they have some vague sense from somewhere, they have this, this idea that God is love. That's a pretty famous thing that's been put out there, right? But, but the problem is we, we, will, we will totally misunderstand what that means if we take our human understanding, our, 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 our pitiful attempts at trying to grasp this concept, if our understanding of what love is, and then we project that onto God. That's, then, then what we end up doing is making a God in our own image with either our faults or, or, or faults that we project. Love is God's to define. He is love. 1 John 4 says, God is love, not once. It wasn't, it wasn't a mistake. It wasn't, oh, well, that was an oversight. It's said twice. That's deep. Okay, and, and, and as a culture, we have a, we have a problem with language, we, right? Some of, you, some of you know that I, I, I'm sure some of you make fun of me behind my back, and that's fine. I still love you. But I'm kind of a neat nick for language, right? I'll, 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 I'll point something out, man, when it, when it matters. And, and I feel like I'm in good company, right? C.S. Lewis was too, right? And we have this problem with hyperbole. And let me tell you something C.S. Lewis said. He said, don't say infinitely when you mean very. Because then you won't have a word left when you want to describe something truly infinite. Do you understand why that matters? It really matters. Because then it also, then when you take words and you use them sloppy, it, 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 it allows for them to be robbed of the depth that they should hold. Okay? And, and love is one of those words for us. Right? The, the Greeks, which most, much of the New Testament was written in Greek, they, had, they, were, they were better than us, in, in my view, and I'm talking about <clears throat> Western English speakers, 
at, at differentiating kinds of affection. And maybe, and maybe in times past we were better. Maybe there was more words in, in the everyday person's vernacular that, that would help with this. But, but today, we've basically boiled down all affection from the, like the deepest sense of romantic love you can think of all the way down to... And, Oh, and it's not lost on me that we were cruising through Mark and we ended up on these scriptures on love on Valentine's Day. I just, I can't take credit for it because I didn't plan it. Just here we are. So, okay, just thought I'd mention that. Uh, also, so, so what am I saying? The, the Greeks did better. They had phileo, brotherly love. They had eros, which was like erotic, erotic romantic love, right? They had storge, which was, it was like, um, it's, it's the love of like long-term commitment, right? Kind of the work side of that. And then, and then there was this word, and, and you don't, here's, what, here's one, and you can go check this. If you look at, if you look at um, ancient literature, the word that the New Testament writers end up grabbing and putting in the place here, of when they're talking about the love of God, or the love that God commands of us, it's not storge, it's not phileo, it's not eros, it's agape. And you don't find that word pop up very much at all in ancient literature. It's almost as if the New Testament writers, they had this sense that like all these other words we have, they're going to fall short because we're trying to describe this thing that is almost synonymous with God in love. And so we, we, it's like we need a different word. And they chose the word agape. The word agape translated in English is love. And here's the problem for us today. We've grabbed that word and, you know, we love our kids, we love our spouse, we love grandma and grandpa, and we love pizza, and we love ice cream, and we, we love, 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 we just throw it out, right? It's become cheapened. It doesn't have any sanctity as if it's this word that John the Apostle, one of Jesus' three closest bros, was, he was comfortable writing in one John that God is love. And not to mention, we just read in Mark 12, that to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. These are the greatest commandments. There's no commandments more important than this. So for me, and I'm hoping for you, that, that grabs your attention. Like, well, hold on. I kind of need to know what that means then. And I can't just settle for whatever kind of sloppy, muddy definition my culture offers me. What does, here's the real question, and this is how we should always approach the scriptures in all things. What does God mean? What, does, what did God mean when he said? Did he just mean a bunch of affection, really strong affection? Is that what God meant when he said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Did God mean what most of us associate Valentine's Day with and it's hearts and it's romance and it's all? None of these things are necessarily bad. I mean, they, they can be. Any good thing can, can be you know, destroyed if used improperly. But, what, but is that what God's talking about? And I don't believe it is, friends. But, but then, isn't it? And if the greatest command, I don't know, you guys aren't letting, I, this is going to be five hours if you don't make me think you're at least getting this basic principle. If the scriptures say the great, the, Jesus was okay. When, they, when the scribe popped up, I told you this was going to happen. It's half your fault. When the scribe popped up and said, hey, what's the greatest commandment? What would most of, and here's what, this is always what they were doing, you understand. This is still, this guy's kind of better than the rest, the Sadducees and everyone else with their little funny riddles. This guy's doing a little better, but he's still coming up with this idea that let's see if we can get Jesus to emphasize one part of the law over the other, because then he'll either tick somebody off or it'll show he's imbalanced, right? And that's, some of you might be worried about that right now. Like, what is this guy on about? Like, love is, there's lots of stuff in the Bible. Isn't it all important? Yes, it's all important. But Jesus was very comfortable saying, there's a greatest commandment. There's one that sits over top of all the rest. Let me tell you what it is. It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. What are you going to do with that? Are you going to act like that isn't what it is? Are you going to gloss over that? Like, well, you know, that, it's probably just a nice thing to say. Or are you going to take Jesus at his word? Because, And this gets spelled out for us as, as we move through the scriptures, because you might be thinking, oh man, well, whew, this sounds like it's getting imbalanced. I don't know, this guy's, whoo, I'm not sure. You know, what, what about Paul? You know, because Paul talked about, about, about God's glory, and, and what about other writers that emphasize God's holiness? And, and, and that's part of what happens sometimes in this discussion. I'm, I want you to be very comfortable to say the most important thing we can consider as humans seeking to follow after 
the God of the Bible, the most important commandment is to love. The most important thing we can consider is to love. I want you to be very, very comfortable with that. And I want you to be driven to think the rest of your life about what that means. Because I'm going to do the best I can to unpack a bunch of it today, and we will not even come close to scratching the surface. Because if God is love, then, and I'm using this word on purpose, C.S. Lewis, if God is infinite and he is love, then that means you can think about, you can experience, you can swim around in, you can dive down deep into the well of God's character and what love is for eternity if it's infinite. You know what that means, right? It goes on forever. And you're never going to exhaust it. That's part of why eternity is not going to be boring. You will spend eternity in awe over the depth and beauty of God's character and his love. For thousands and millions and billions of years, you will continue to gasp as more and more and more of God's beauty and depth and holiness and radiance is revealed. You're never going to wear him out. I hope you're excited about that. I am. No other, and, and that's the problem sometimes in this conversation. You'll probably, you've probably listened, maybe you've heard this before. What I'm, what I'm focused on more is what our responsibility is. What, what does God expect of us? What is the most important thing for us to consider as it pertains to us following Jesus faithfully? What I'm not so much commenting on is, is trying to parse out and divide God's characteristics, the nature of God, because that's where this, this conversation often devolves into that. And you'll have people that get, with an overemphasis on love, I think their first problem is, Half the time when they're worried about that, they're, it's because they, they're, they haven't worked on the definition of what love is from God's perspective. So that's what makes them nervous. They're, they're looking at the way culture talks about love and they're like, oh man, if we, if, we, if we make that too supreme among these ideas, man, that's gonna, that, that could lead to imbalance and problems. But it doesn't if you really think through it. Because I'm talking about what our responsibility is. I'm not talking about God's character and nature. I think it's ignorant for us to pit God's character and nature the elements of who he is against each other. Because you'll have some people say, you know, somebody will be preaching like I'm preaching, probably not quite like this, but something along these lines. They'll be talking about the supremacy of love, and you'll have someone come along and go, oh, well, I'm not sure. You know, the angels in heaven, they sing holy, 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 not love, love, love. It's like, okay, that's cool. Um, I've seen Revelation too. But here's the thing about that, okay? I'm not, I don't think God's love and God's holiness are in competition, at all. I think, they, I think they go together. I think all of God's character and nature interweaves in a way that we'll never be able to quite pull it apart, right? And, and let's, just use, let's just use that for an example. So, so, so really, sometimes what someone said, then if, if God's character of holiness to them, they're going to take that scripture, the angels say, holy, holy, holy. They're going to say God's holiness is more important than God's love. And I'm telling you, a lot of times it's because they're freaked out because they think if we talk about love in this, at, the, at the level of supremacy that it seems like Jesus is comfortable with, it's going to cause imbalance in people. It's going to cause them to, to be uh, not worried about sin and just too, too kind of soft in their approach. But I don't, I don't think it does that at all. So, so if we're going to use holy, for example, let's, let's just think about that. So what is a holy person? Think about, just take a second think about that. What is a holy person? When you think of a holy person, let's get off God for a second, a holy person what, what would you, how would you describe that? Well, as I try to conceptualize that, I'm thinking, I'm thinking someone who obeys God's commands faithfully. That's a holy person, right? Is that a holy person? It is. And, and, but what we have to remember is, so if, if a holy person is someone that obeys God's commands, we got to remember that God gives commands that reflect his character and his commands are summarized by love. You see that throughout the scriptures, Right? If you, look, <clears throat> maybe you're like, ooh, you know what? What would Paul say? This guy seems unhinged. What would Paul say about this? Let, let, me, let me help you something. Go to Romans 13, 8. What Paul would say to you is, owe no man anything but to love him. Because love summarizes the entire law. And then he goes to break it all out. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. All of that is covered in the command to love God and love one another. And here's what I'm saying to you. We... There's a lot of ways you can waste your time. You will never waste your time thinking about how loving God and loving people covers all the bases 
of what God expects of us. It's the summary of the entire law. It's the summary of the commands that God has given us. It's the whole thing. I don't, I don't quite understand how that... I get it. I don't quite understand it either, and I've been thinking about it a long time. I don't know that we can, but it's still true. Peter, in 1 Peter 4.8, said, Above all, keep fervent in your love one for the other. Right? You only get to say above all once. So we got Peter, we got Paul, John clearly is on board. What about James? James said that love is the royal law. He had no problem elevating it above the rest either. I'm not sure I understand what all this means yet. I know you won't at the end of this sermon either. But I want to send you out of here very comfortable, even if you, don't even if you can't spell it out for somebody else, I want to send you out of here very comfortable with this idea. Love is supreme. The call from God to love is supreme. There's some, uh, there's some that'll, in, in, in not being nervous around the, the way I'm talking right now, they'll say, no, 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 no. The supreme point of creation and redemption is God's glory. It's all for God's glory, okay? Well, if you've been around me for five minutes, you know I got no problem with God's glory, right? We're about that here. Amen? We are. God's glory is imminent. It's, it's super important. And I have no problem with the idea that this, if you want to say the supreme point of creation and redemption is God's glory, I know I, that's, that's perfectly fine. And that does not contradict what I'm saying to you now. Because all natural and scriptural revelation, what do I mean by that? Walk outside and look with open eyes. The Bible says creation should point you to a good and powerful creator, right? So I'm talking about natural revelation and scriptural revelation. So everything we have in the scriptures, all of that should lead us to glorify God. But what does that, even, what does that mean, to glorify him? Well, it means to worship him. And, and I, would, I would say to worship him with singular focus and with adoration. Or in other words, to love him. Really, this is about, worshiping God is about loving him. God doesn't want you just to say, oh, you're glorious, oh, you're awesome, oh, I acknowledge that you're powerful. He wants you to know that you can trust him and he wants you to love him. Because he loved you first. Because he wove into your very essence the ability to reflect his character and his love to him, back to him, and to others. And why, why do I say we need to redefine love to the culture? Because friends, I, I don't think the vast majority of people when they hear the word love, that, I don't think God's what comes to their mind first. 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and so we ought to lay down our lives for one another. Wrapped into the... God's idea, the essence of agape, what God means when he says love, is a radical, fervent, almost nonsensical commitment to the good of another, even at the expense of yourself. It runs counter to every natural fiber of your being. Self-preservation and, and survival, these instincts, love comes to Love comes to crush those <laughs> and to bring you to a place where laying your life down for the good of another, laying your life down fully, completely in service to this God that made you doesn't, doesn't become something that's a begrudging task. It becomes, becomes this joyous outflow of how much you've already been loved, of what's been poured into you. Sacrifice. Christ on the cross. Do we want to start to understand love? What is our best chance? What does God mean here when he says, the mouth of Christ says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Right? He hints at the completeness of it, but still doesn't define it. And to love your neighbor as yourself. Thank God he had John give us at least a glimpse, pointing us in the right direction as we think through these things. By this we know love. By what? That he laid down his life. 
Where do we look? Where do we go? Where do we run to understand what love really is? From God's perspective, we've got to look at the cross. We run to Christ and his cross. We fix our eyes upon it. We don't look away. And then we keep on seeking to walk and live in such a way that reflects that towards God and towards others. I got to get off of that so I can hit this other stuff. <laughs> there is, my point is, you want to talk about God's holiness, you want to talk about God's glory, you want to talk about any, anything else, none of that is in conflict with his love. To me, the most loving thing God can do for us, foolish little petty humans that oftentimes think we have the right answers, just like these guys. Jesus had to come and say, hey guys, you know, the whole Lord, you know, the Lord said to my Lord, that, that whole deal and how, how is the Messiah, the son of David? Guys, it's me, right? <laughs> the whole deal there's the most loving thing God can do. That's, that's why it's not prideful for God to do this. That's why it's not prideful for God to glorify himself. It's not prideful for God to demand to be glorified because he is the point. He is the one that made us. He is the place where we're going to find fulfillment. He's the place where we're going to find purpose. He's the only place we're going to find long-standing eternal joy. He is the point for your very existence. And so for him to glorify himself is not some narcissistic deal. It's an act of love to you. To get your silly eyes off of all the little answers you think you already have figured out and to get your face pointed towards the God who made you and loves you and can save you and wants you forever. When God is glorified, you are loved. He's the only one that that can be true of. You don't get to go out of here and say, oh, well, when I glorify myself, it's an act of love to others. No! You're not God. He's the only one that gets to do it which is one of the myriad of reasons he alone deserves our worship. Amen. All right. We talked about humility being a core value, something that we think that... And, and the rest of these, humility, diversity, unity, they're really, it's really just breaking out specifics of the manifestation of love in the people of God. Right? It's... it's it's, it's really trying to round it out and give some more body to it as we continue to seek to understand and define love from God's perspective. Inside of that is this idea of humility. We see that in what I quoted to you, 1 John 3.16. In order for me to have a radical, almost nonsensical commitment to your good above my own is going to require humilities in that mix, is it not? It is. Okay. How do we see it here? Again, uh, Let's, let's look at 38 through, 38 through 40. In his teaching, he was saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses and for appearances' sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. This is one of many places where Jesus makes abundantly clear that humility is incredibly important if you're going to try to follow after him. Philippians kind of wraps this up for us in a really powerful way in saying that we should have the same mind that was in Christ Jesus, who being equal with God did not consider that something to hold on to, but emptied himself, right? Who became a servant on our behalf. That Jesus Christ, who was in eternity past, right? Sitting upon the throne of heaven, saw fit to take on flesh, come down in here in the dirt with us, live a human life and a human experience so that he could be the sacrifice that paid the price for our sins. That, again, is the pinnacle of humility. You're not going to out-humble Jesus, okay? But we should, we should follow after in that wake. <laughs> That's, we should walk behind that. And humility is it's not thinking less of yourself. It, it's thinking of yourself less. That's an important distinction because some people could hear humility and think, and, and this, is, this is the way poor teaching about this has manifested in the past. You'll, you'll have people leaving a discussion of, of godly humility thinking that what God wants them to do is just beat themselves up all the time and, and talk about what a worm they are and how useless they are. No, man. A, a primary message of the scriptures is, hey, you have dignity, value, and worth that is eternal because it is intrinsically connected to the fact that you're made in the image of God. 
And so regardless of what culture says about you, regardless of what your family says about you, regardless of what all the haters have to say, God, who's the ultimate authority on the matter, sees you as priceless to the point that he would allow the blood of Christ to be shed in order to have fellowship with you for eternity. So whatever you've decided about yourself, whatever other people have decided about you, all those opinions matter very, very little in comparison to the opinion of the God that made you. He gets to have primary authority about your value, right? When, a, when an artist makes a piece of art, <clears throat> does the, you know, say, they, say they're a sculptor and they, they, they sculpt up a, I don't know, let's say a vase. That was a nice way to say it, wasn't it? I didn't say vase, I said vase. Trying to fancy up my language a little bit for Valentine's Day today. Vase, right? So they make this vase and they set it out and you know, take it to the art show. Does the vase determine its value? Does the vase say, well, I'm worth 20 bucks? Or does the artist put a tag on that thing and say, I made that. I know what went into it. I know what it's worth. I'm going to set the value. Who gets to pick it? The art or the artist? Say it out loud so I know you're alive. The artist. Okay, spoiler alert, you're not the artist that made you. That's the God of the universe. And so, you need to start taking your cues about what you're worth from what he says. Not from what you think. Not from what others have said. I love others, but if, if they're trying to beat you down into this, this you know, place of, of where you, you would, would think you have no value, you're not loved or, or whatever, man, they can kick rocks. That wasn't very theological. Yeah, but you understood what I meant, didn't you? Amen. Jesus used plain language too. I'm glad he did. I, I need it. Amen. And, and humility is, as I said, just remember, it's, it's, it's another specific facet of walking in love. Amen. We talked about diversity being a strength. We, we see that three ways here at Love City Church. We think that if we are ethnically diverse as a church, if we are generationally diverse as a church, and if we are socioeconomically diverse as a church, we have different kinds of people that comprise this body of believers. We believe, without a doubt, that will make us stronger. It, it's contrary to human nature. Human nature is to find people that look like you and earn like you and are roughly your age and huddle together with them because you'll feel comfortable with them. Thankfully, love isn't about your comfort. It's about the glory of God. It's about the furthering of his mission. And it's about the good of one another. And if you have had the great pleasure of being able to have friendships with people who are different than you in those three ways, I, I suspect that you know you're better for it. Amen. A lot of times I don't leave pauses for, for amens there, and I know that's my fault. That's part of why, that's part of why you know, sometimes this place feels like a library, not a church. We're working on it. But I left a pause there, so I need you guys to catch the cues, all right? I will get a neon sign, so help me God, that says amen, and I will get a button, if that's what it takes. Don't, don't push it. You want neon in this sanctuary? What would that do to the look in here? It would not be good. We got a great thing going, and you're going to ruin it. So if something true gets said, man, just say something about it. Amen. All right, there you go. All right. I know. So where do we see diversity? Let's look at uh, 41 through 44. He sat down opposite the treasury, began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury, and many rich people were putting in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent, there's debate on that. There's some people who think this is the equivalent of a dollar. We're not going to get all hemmed up in that. It's not much money. Very little money. Okay? That's what you need to know. Calling his disciples to him, this got Jesus' attention. Boys, come over here. i got to show you something. He said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty. Put in all she owned and all she had to live on. So I'm, I'm in diversity, and we'll get to that in a second, but I just want to say this. If you want to understand, what, well, what does Love City Church believe about giving and stuff and 
and offerings and all that. This is it, right? If you just want to go read the widow's might, you'll, you'll get, this is what we believe about it. Right here, period. Okay? We don't see a 10% tithe very prominently focused on in the New Testament. What we see is that when the gospel of grace is revealed in Christ, it goes from, it, 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 this idea of giving reorients itself from kind of this, this obligatory idea. And again, it, it, gets, it gets seasoned with love and devotion and this idea of sacrifice. And so the, the widow takes it, getting all hung up on the tithe and all. And, and some people look, I still, me personally, our family, we treat the tithe as a, as a floor for our giving. But also, uh, you know what? I think percentage doesn't seem to be the key as you move into the New Testament. It seems that regular and sacrificial giving, that wherever you're at financially, that whatever you give towards the work of God's kingdom, you should feel it. That seems to be the point. Jesus gave till it hurt a lot. You should give at least till it hurts a little. That's, that's a pretty, the widow's mite's a pretty good summary of what we believe about giving here. Okay? The widow's trust in God and her generous heart, they're a model for us. Okay? Now I'm back to diversity. And let me, did you hear what I just said? The, the widow's trust in God, she had to be really trusting God to take the last two minas she had and toss them in that thing. Did she not? She knew God was her provider. And her generous heart, they are a model for us. When I see Jesus, when I see something catch my master's attention, I want to make sure it catches my attention. When he says, whoa, boys, come here. Let me show you something. This widow right here, she gave more than all the contributors. There's debate about it, but I, I stand on the side. I think what he's saying is she gave not more than each of them gave, but more than all of them gave. Okay? That's... What does that mean? Part of what it means is, though Jesus pointed that out, and that does catch my attention, and her, she's a model for us to follow, if everybody in line that day could only give two minas, the temple wouldn't have been able to function. And so don't over-read into this what Jesus is saying. Always keep in mind that there is, righteousness is not tied to socioeconomic status. This woman was not did not, Jesus was not impressed with this woman because she was poor. Jesus was impressed with this woman because she trusted him and she was sacrificially generous. There were also some rich people in line that day giving larger amounts. Jesus said their heart could use some work on that. I'd like to be able to get them to see how she's giving and why she's giving to the heart of the matter to influence their giving. But, but they were all there and it, it, it takes all kinds. Okay, so... The other thing I want to do from this, just real quick, <laughs> and this is the part where <clears throat> I, I'm going to try really hard not to sound sassy because I don't want to, but <laughs> you know, you know how it goes. I want to prove to you that those who truly follow Jesus cannot be money hungry charlatans. Okay? Let, let's think about this. And before I say that, this, hopefully this takes some of the edge off. I can I understand and I can empathize with many who think this way. But it, you know, the summary statement would be, "Well, the church just wants your money, or the church just wants my money." Well, that statement in and of itself betrays a wrong understanding of the resources in your hands, right? Because if you're worried about the church wanting your money, you, you misunderstand that the, if the breath in your lungs belongs to God, then then whatever money you may have also belongs to Him, right? So. A great inversion in our thinking is not, well, how much of my money should I give to God? It's how much of God's money should I keep for myself? That's really a better way to think about it. Okay. Well, that's kind of extreme. I, okay. Well, read the widows might see what Jesus said about it and you deal, deal with him over it. I mean, what do you want me to do? It's, this is what he said. Amen. Okay. But, but I just, True followers of Jesus can't be money-hungry charlatans because true followers of Jesus are going to think like Jesus. And if, if Christianity as a religion was established by some wise old sages in the desert just to hoodwink people out of like giving their money and let's, let, let's see how much money we can get out of people, if that was the point of the whole thing, why would our founder and why would his followers let it be recorded that when everybody was rolling up that day with big 
big bags of coin, dropping it in. He stops the show and says, hold on a second, boys, look at this. Here's the one I want to emphasize to you, the one that put in two minas. That's not somebody that's about trying to get a bunch of money or that really needs the money. That's, not, that's the point, right? Jesus, Jesus doesn't need your money. But he does want your heart. And he said clearly, what you do with your money is going to determine a lot of what happens with where your heart goes. Boom, right? There you go. Okay. This, now, let me, but here, let me say this too. I really want to, when, when people feel that way, when they stay away from Jesus and they stay away from Christians because they're like, oh man, it's just, it's all, all the church wants is money. I understand how some people get there, I promise. Like, I've seen, man, mm, I've seen some stuff. I, I was painting in somebody's house when I was painting their kitchen. And um, I can't remember who it was, it's none of you. But they had TBN on, and there was this guy on there. And I prayed about whether or not to say his name. I'm just not going to do it. That's not the point. But this guy's on TV, and I know when it was. It was 2008. It was 8808. And here's why I know that. Because as I'm in there painting this person's kitchen, cutting in around the cabinets and stuff, this is just running in the background. I hear him, I hear him on there talking about, the, the, Lord, the Lord revealed to me that if you'll sow a special seed on 8808, that it's going to have this and such effect and whatever. And I'm pretty sure he had some set amount. It's probably $800 conveniently, right? So I know like that stuff exists and it's disgusting. And if, if men and women that have done that to people don't repent before God truly, they're going to have a real rough time with him one day. Okay. But that is real, and I want to be compassionate towards that. And if you've seen that, I, pr- I just promise you that doesn't represent Jesus accurately. And, and here's something else I want to tell you. Part of how you can, because you might be saying, okay, well, if there's all these charlatans, how do we know? How do we know you're not one? Well, I mean, you'd have to be around me a while. You'd have to be here a while, and the Holy Spirit would have to give you a, a witness that it's okay to trust, and, and you, we want you to do that, okay? But aside from that, um, here's one way you can tell. I'm going to give you an indicator. I'm going to give you a clue. If somebody is, is really a charlatan, part of what you'll see consistently is they will always, they'll, they'll, have, they'll, they'll be talking about special seed amount or this or that or whatever, and there'll always be a certain dollar amount. If you got somebody telling you, if you give this certain dollar amount, I know God's going to bless you, or you give this certain dollar amount, it's going to be significant, you can, you can be rest assured that person should not be trusted. Because that's not what Jesus cares about is some certain dollar amount. He cares about your heart. Your heart is tied to the resources he's entrusted you with. Absolutely. Where your treasure is, your heart is also. Okay? That all goes together. Giving is a part of worship. I got no problem saying that. And I will talk to you about it if you have a problem with me saying it. And I'll try to be loving about it. But I can't change it. That's what God said. Okay? But I also recognize there's a lot of people who who have been took. They've seen their granny get took. they've, They've seen grotesque abuses of people who have the gall to say the name of Jesus and then try to use that to manipulate people to get money from them. And I'm just telling you right now, I, I, sincerely, I sincerely hope that they see the error of that and repent of that and receive God's grace and mercy for that. But if they don't, Jesus talked about the scribes and Pharisees that like the long robes, right? You know what that means? It means they don't like to work. They, like, they want other people to Shower them with gifts is really how it worked here because technically by the law, they couldn't take money as pay, but they had real good ways of manipulating people into getting it. Okay, so anyways, that's all that. True followers of Jesus aren't going to be charlatans. Just We need to make that distinction. <clears throat> Unity was the last thing I wanted to say. Uh, it, it's the last core value I want to talk to you about. 35 through 37, again, um, what did I tell you 35 through 37 was about? Again, it's, it's pointing us to the gospel. It's Jesus pointing to himself. It's all about Jesus. It's always been about Jesus. It will always be about Jesus. That is really the point of verses 35 through 37. And it was Jesus who prayed a prayer in John 17 that should catch our attention around this idea of unity. I'm going to read you a section of that. Before I do, I want you to know this is the... Um, one of, if not the longest uh, recorded prayers we have of Jesus. This is very close to the time he's about to be betrayed by Judas and taken to the, uh, to the cross. And so he, he doesn't have much time left here on earth. 
And, and this is one of the longest prayers we have from him, recorded in John 17. Okay, this is, this, what I'm, so why am I telling you that? This is what was on the mind of the master. This is what was on the mind of Jesus as he knows he's but hours away from being betrayed into the hands of the Romans to be murdered. This is what he's thinking about. Like, what would you be thinking about? You know, may, maybe not this. Here's what he's thinking about. This is his prayer. I'm not asking on behalf of these alone. Who's he talking about? The apostles. He was praying for the apostles. But then he says, I'm not just asking for them, but who? Also for those who believe in me through their word. So who's that? That's you and me if we're believers today. Because they spoke the word of the gospel that was spoken, that was spoken, and today, by God's grace, it's reached our ears and our hearts. Okay? So Jesus is praying for you and me right now. Isn't that cool? All right. Someone almost thought it was cool over in this corner. The rest of you are not sure yet. I guess I'll read the prayer, then you can decide if it's cool. Okay. Verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The prayer of Christ, right before going to the cross, is that you and I would walk in unity akin to, like the unity that Christ and the Father walk in. This is what was on his mind. And he tied our unity to this idea, so that the world may believe that you sent me. A lot of the reason why many people stand outside of God's church and aren't willing to trust to come in is because they see the bickering and infighting. And look, sometimes family, sometimes family squabbles, but it's different, right? It should be. But the hate and vitriol and lack of unity that oftentimes is able to infiltrate the body of Christ, it is a direct assault upon the witness that we're supposed to bear. This good news that we're supposed to share with the world. All of these, he's still praying, all of these really... No, I'm sorry. No, he's not. So that the world may believe... This is where I'm at. So that the world may believe that you sent me. I don't know how much time you've spent thinking about the fact that in Jesus' mind, my unity with you, your unity with me, our unity with one another is tied to our witness, is tied to how effective we're going to be able to be in going out into this world, sharing the love of God, sharing the goodness of the gospel, sharing the truth that no matter what people believe about themselves or what others have told them, they have value and that God desires relationship with them. There's, whether we are in unity with one another is going to affect how well we can do that job. I don't know how much you've thought about it, but I'm, I'm saying we should probably think about it more. And again, this, how, how do you accomplish that kind of unity? How do God and Jesus have that kind of unity? Well, they, they have this incredible love for one another. And that's going to be the key to our unity as well, is coming back to those greatest commandments, to love God and love one another. And to, and to not get bored with the idea of thinking through what that means. To not ever be so foolish as to think, we've maxed out our potential in obeying those commands. We haven't. It's not possible. I can love better tomorrow than I have today. If, I, if I'm going to be more like Jesus, I'm going to be more loving. And I want to keep thinking about how that reaches out and touches every single relationship, every single action, every single thing that I do. Jesus was comfortable. Paul was comfortable. Peter was comfortable. James was comfortable. John was comfortable. Everybody's okay with saying, hey, if you're going to just focus, there's one thing to focus on that should take supreme preeminence over everything else, and that's to love God and to love others. And the key is, if you're still nervous about, well, what does that mean? That seems imbalanced. What about everything else? I'm going to encourage you to keep thinking about how those two things weave through everything else. They address everything else. Everything else is in there. So I'm not saying it, there's no point in us ever breaking down and talking about unity more specifically or humility more specifically or diversity more specifically, but what I am telling you is, according to the scriptures, we can sum all that up in one thing. It's love. It's love from God's perspective. It's love by God's definition. And so friends, I hope you leave here with a hunger and a thirst a desire to know more and more, what does God mean? What does he mean when he says that he loves me? What does that mean? And how much of my own definition am I letting shape how I think about that? How much it, how much it 
affects me. What does God mean when he says he loves me? What does God mean when he says I'm supposed to love others and to love him? We need to think about it. We need to pray about it. We should focus on it. We should swim in it and live it, walk it, breathe it. It's the key. All of these things we're talking about, they really come back to loving God and loving people. And talking about how these verses kind of can be home base for us as a church. If, if we're obeying loving God and loving people, if we're doing that, then we will be active in making disciples. Because what does that mean? It means that we're doing the hard work of teaching folks how to walk in the excellent way of love. How to walk in the purpose for which they were created. It's... It's the, it's the boiled down bottom line of what God expects of us. And he's given us everything we need in the gospel, in the truth about Christ, in the way he's loved us to go out and walk it out. We're going to need the help of the Holy Spirit because our own flesh and desires and sinful tendencies are going to kick against that. We're going to want to do what we want to do. We're going to want to do what we think is going to feel best for us at time, you know, from time to time. But the great hope is the longer we do this, the farther we go with Jesus, the more we're molded and we're shaped into an implement of love. Praise God. I hope you'll desire it. I hope you'll pray for it. I hope you'll think about it. I promise you I will be. I'm not done yet. Will you pray with me? Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. We thank you for uh, this day. Thank you for these scriptures. Thank you for allowing us the great privilege of, of laying our eyes upon these words. These are deep words. These are meaningful words. These are, these are words that we struggle to, to describe their importance. Lord, I ask you to help us. I ask you to stir in us a hunger and a thirst, a desire insatiable, Lord, to, to explore these things, to think about these things, to spend time in your word connecting the dots of how all of this really it goes together. May we be continually overwhelmed with gratitude and, and left in awe of what it is you've done and said, what you've called us to. Lord, if if what you're calling us to is to love you and to love others, and our example for that is Christ on the cross, then we know. <laughs> we know we've still, we still got work to do. But I thank you that it's not something you've told us to do and then left us to our own devices. But a part of your gospel message is that you did die on the cross and you did rise from the grave, but then you also sent us a helper. And you've given us your Holy Spirit. So we're not just relying on our own strength and power, but we get to lean back into yours. And God, we know that you have all that we need. And so, Jesus, I'm asking you to overwhelm us with these things. I'm asking you to not let them become common to us. I'm asking for this church specifically, who many of them have heard some version of this many times. I'm asking, Lord, that you would you would crush in us that tendency for complacency and familiarity that because we've heard it before, we tend to think, oh, okay, well, I've got that. Lord, we don't just need the information. We, we need to understand that this is about continual transformation, that you're still doing something, you're working in us, and we don't get it all yet. In many ways, we're like those scribes that thought they had it all figured out. And you came and asked them about, about you, and they didn't get it. Lord, why, don't, why do we think we have all the answers all the time? I don't know. We're fools sometimes. But God, we're open to your correction, we're open to your direction, and we're open to you continuing to lovingly shape and mold us. So we submit ourselves to that process joyfully. And we ask you to continue, Lord, to make us more like you, make us more loving, help us fulfill the purpose for which you created us. We give you all glory and honor and praise. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. 
Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.